On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, my name is Christian and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. We're approaching the first year milestone of the podcast and truly I can't believe it's gone this fast. We're super excited about our season finale and can't wait to kick off the new year of Throughline with something special and unexpected. But you'll just have to wait for all of that and wait a little bit until the breakdown of this episode because as always, let me tell you about some special people. We are proud members of the Pan- Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier place for music and entertainment-related podcasts from the incredibly specific to the wonderfully broad. And one of those podcasts just so happens to be the parent of our little monster, one co-hosted by my expert host dad, Matthew, and his exceptionally humorous friend Kyle, and their audio engineer, the master mixer behind Throughline's wonderful sound quality as well, Randy. Wouldn't you know it, it's the Audio Judo Podcast. Having just finished their 100th episode, they're an incredible source of albums, new and old, that that maybe you've never heard of, or maybe you want to know the history and meaning and perhaps some personal anecdotes behind them. Check them out wherever you podcast. Now, all of the preliminary doing aside, we're covering a band this time that was huge when their debut album came out, and since then, I have never heard a new song by. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it doesn't mean they've fallen out of radio popularity. But there's really no denying the influence their sound had on the musical landscape when it released. And it'd be hard to find a modern pop station that doesn't spin one of their songs every now and again. It's the dynamic duo, electro pop, prog rock group, MGMT, and their debut album, that all-time seller, Oracular Spectacular. This album released in Deep Fall 2007, released originally by Sony subsidiary Red Inc. and subsequently by Columbia Records. It was a massive success, both critically and commercially. The album received an aggregate review score of 76 out of 100 and has since held a spot on the Rolling Stones top 500 of all time. Even Robert Christigau, the long maligned center of disdain by the Audio Judo podcast, for generally good reason, gave it an honorable mention rating, praising them in that quality of his. The name of the album is rather peculiar, but as we'll come to find in the breakdown, is no poor estimate of the lyrical and metaphorical quality of the album. Oracular Spectacular generally translating to an enigmatic, large-scale event. The album sold over a million copies, going platinum in Australia, Canada, and Denmark, and two times platinum in Ireland and the UK. Just gold in the US, however. It's generally classified as being synth-pop, but as we'll see, the album is actually much 
much more in line with old-school prog rock and psych-pop 60s and 70s era. If you're not convinced that that's who they are, there's an additional single that released with the Japan version that's a 14-ish minute magnum opus called Metanoia that combines all of these elements. We won't be covering that song, but it's well worth a listen. Now, if you don't know who MGMT are, well, they're a prog rock synth-pop band based out of Connecticut? To be honest, I didn't know things actually happened in Connecticut. I don't think I can name offhand a single city in the state other than Hartford, but honestly, this might be a good thing. Seeing bands rise out of towns in places that aren't traditionally considered to have a strong musical scene means the industry is changing to allow for more diverse people from different places to find success. The unfair advantage of a proper location is no longer a major hurdle. Now, the band began in 2002 under the name The Management, testing the waters with some minor releases and playing songs at their university before changing their name due to some crossover with another band. Now, despite having released four studio albums, the last in 2018, it's a curiosity that their only real success occurred with this album. Their fourth album, Little Dark Age, hit some success with the eponymous single, but other than that, and their consistent 11 million monthly listeners on Spotify, I feel like I haven't heard about them at all, other than their singles. But it's not like they're nowhere. They've done over 700 shows and recently released a live album in 2022 of original music they composed for an art retrospective project. The crux of it has always been, for better or for worse, that they are not a band that wants to redo what made them famous. Hopefully, we haven't seen the last of them, for they've always been considered pioneers in their field, and it would be a shame for that to slowly vanish. But either way, we're here to cover what the band has accomplished. And to do that, I can think of no better way than by beginning, stopping all this to doing and starting the breakdown for this week's episode of Throughline. A curious one for me, as you'll find out, an album that felt massive when it released. It's MGMT's Oracular Spectacular. So to start, let me be honest with you. I've been notoriously unkind to this band for as long as I can remember. Electric Feel always felt a little goofy to me, a little silly. Time to Pretend was good for the most part, but felt like it dragged on for too long. Bolstered, in my opinion, merely by its existence on Guitar Hero Live, the underrated last call of that series. And kids. Oh, kids. Back when I was a young whippersnapper, a hater by all regards, when I maligned popular music because it felt like it gave me power to some degree over its fans, a rather poor, hypocritical, and rude way to be, this was the song I used to describe how pop music had become empty and vapid. A family of trees wanted to be haunted. What the hell was that supposed to mean? It felt random and nonsensical, not to mention my general disdain with the singer's purposefully off-kilter voice, one that, to be fair, is not even so far-flung or bizarre as one of my personal favorites in Ryan Lott from Sunlux, a band we've literally just covered. I was irate, filled with a resolute hatred that ultimately turned out to be devoid of reason, merely being contrarian, a hipster looking for some semblance of uniqueness in a world being rapidly consumed by seeming conformism and consumerism 
terrorism at every turn. I suppose, in a way, it felt like I could control a little factor of the world, carve out a niche that I carried, a hatred that was fully my own, to suppress the feeling that I was inconsequential, merely a blip in time and size. I wanted to make a mark, even if that mark involved tearing something down that was popular. Never did it occur to me that I could gain something from that thing I sought to sour. Never did it dawn that there was possibly more to be learned from examination than dismissal, at least not until recently. Not really since starting this podcast, truly. And finally, turning my sights toward a band I actively have shown malice for, spoken poorly of, and generally had a bad attitude toward, I have learned something. Something about the reasons for the way I was, and perhaps a way forward. A parallel to my journey of self-discovery and gained appreciation since starting this podcast. Coincidentally, an album that attempts to find a place in the modern Fuster Cluck to combat the nihilism of a world ending and find some element of life love, community, to build a better tomorrow while understanding the purpose of today, to combat negativity, or at least confront it and learn to channel a different strategy, you know, common through-line themes. Now that's sure a hell of a lot of pretty words, but what does all of this really mean? Well, maybe let's have the band say a few words. Not that I have them on this episode, don't be silly, but instead through their music, specifically that infamous element of music, the bridge, from the last song in the album, Future Reflections. If it's good or if it's fortune, I can't tell. But pieces come together for some reason just as well. Now this is a bit of a spoiler, kind of the moral of the story, but how exactly do we come to this conclusion? What's the mechanism by which we approach this sentiment of defiant nihilism? A belief that there may be no rhyme or reason to it all, but that it still coalesces into something anyway. Now you, like me, are likely hearing this line, still relatively a simple line, and asking to yourself, isn't this an electropop album from the late aughts? I thought they had just a few fun songs, stylized pretty firmly in that glistening late aughts indie pop style. You know the one. To which I'll say, I thought so too. But as you'll quickly learn, and I had the pleasure and surprise to discover a few days prior, this is absolutely anything but a pop band. Literally every other song on this album, besides the four we've mentioned so far, and Future Reflections is kind of not really included in the pop songs anyway, every other song is experimental prog rock with incredibly dense lyrics and high concepts. Absolutely no joke, I had to pick apart the lyrics as if I were still in university analyzing poetry, and I'm still not confident I've picked it clean. It's metaphorical and allegorical and altogether, for lack of a better Better word, difficult. It's difficult to understand, and I'm shocked, again betraying my fundamental disdain still brewing for this band. Let's name a few examples of what I mean and start to find a deeper understanding of the story as a result. Take a quick listen to verse one of the second song in the album, Weekend Wars. Yeah. 
Yes, this is the second song on this album. The song after Time to Pretend. This is the same band. This is not Bowie or some other 60s to 80s prog pop artist. This verse is so textured, working on multiple levels to describe a combative personality, one that struggles to balance multiple facets of who they are and who they want to be. There are hints toward a conversation about the corrupting influence of wealth, the evil S, specifically written as a dollar sign in the lyric sheet. Hints toward the paralyzing aspect of depression, saying he was too lazy to bathe or paint or write or try to make a change. And the use of drugs to mask the desire to party, which is used to mask the depression. We could crush some plants to paint my walls, and I won't try to fight in the weekend wars. The verse even ends bizarrely with a line that is as complicated. On one hand, a possible connection to apathy as the panacea for his depressive state, ignoring the problems, becoming numb to get through the day to manage to eat. On the other hand, it, just like the crush some plants to paint my walls line, evokes a tenuous relationship with the earth and the taking aspect of modern society for creature comforts, but an impending sense of doom that we are all growing more and more numb to. That connection to the earth even extends into that personally maligned line I talked about earlier, you know, the one from kids. Control yourself. Take only what you need from it. Having talked about interacting with the natural world in the first verse of this song and lamenting the failure of memory in the second verse, this chorus hits harder as a treatise on communicating with the environment, cultivating a world that isn't built on taking to the point where those trees can be a more worthwhile part of everyday life, growing within our world more readily and becoming active members of our home, a home you may perhaps die in one day and then haunt, a ghost of that living home, or perhaps Perhaps the line is a reference to becoming one with nature, or perhaps it is in reference to creating a legacy for your ancestors, a lasting presence in the family tree, almost as if haunting it. And again, further, in Of Moons, Birds, and Monsters, they grow even more critical of the state of the world, asking this in the beginning. Why'd you cut holes in the face of the moon base? Don't you know about the temperature change in the cold black shadow? Effectively, why are we researching something we don't occupy, ignoring that which lives in its shadow? Why are we exploring when we need to be rescuing? Or does it even mean that at all? See, that's the difficulty with this album. Each line could be talking about what's on the surface, or instead referencing that which is a few layers deep. There are enough self-referential lines within the album to make a case for any. So really, why even try? What's the point to this experiment if everything is so filled with meaning that it effectively becomes meaningless? And what if that question, what if that thought experiment, that breakdown of logic, and the search for meaning in the meaningless is exactly what the album is about? I mean, yeah, that's what I think it's about. That's my my theory for the through line, finding purpose in the purposeless, discovering a meaning to a world that seems uncontrollable and unknowable. And how about we start figuring out why and how and who cares with song one on the album, Time to Pretend. I mean, 
yeah, it doesn't really get more clear than that. An incredibly explicit satire of the live fast, die young lifestyle, wanting to live in the moment and focus on momentary pleasures. From the beginning, it really emphasizes the fact that the world is quite oppressive and unfulfilling at times, asking questions that essentially break down to, why wouldn't I live this hedonistic way? Why wouldn't I focus on the fun things? What else am I going to do? Get jobs in offices and wake up for the morning commute? As the song suggests, we're all fated to pretend. Either you can pretend that your life is better than it is, a fake representation of the joy you derive from the common drudgery of day-to-day life, or you can pretend that focusing on the moment and throwing caution to the wind, focusing on the moment over your legacy or your memories you'll keep when you're older, you can pretend that that's actually what you want, that it will feel good in the end. The singer seems conflicted, the ending of the song merely an affirmation of what they've been saying. Yeah, 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 without any real indication on whether or not what they've been saying is satire or serious. Do they actually want to live this way, or do they not feel like they have any choice? And as we've been seeing, this song already sets the stage for this contradiction, this internal struggle between something to fight for and hold on to, or something just to experience, a main thematic idea that carries throughout the album. And this is very clearly explored in a specific subset of this conversation, in the examination of nostalgia and memory and childhood, found in this song most obviously in verse 2. Yeah, I'll miss the boredom and the freedom and the time spent alone. This line especially is curious. Not just a few lines prior, the main character elucidates that a key feature of living this rock star life is to forget our mothers and our friends. But here, not moments later, he specifies that he'll miss the comfort of his mother. The life they're describing in the song sounds wild and crazy nearly constantly, but for a brief moment of clarity in the center, the singer is pointing to the fact that it's likely exhausting, and perhaps, in a way, fleeting. When everything is constant, as many people can attest to, it feels like you don't really have time to experience anything. And with that inexperience comes the inability or lack of access to spend time with yourself and learn more about yourself. The focus on the present does not just affect your future, but directly affects your ability to reconcile in your present and make the situation better. Ultimately, the singer describes the main character as willing to choke on his vomit, an aspect of an overdose, and that will be the end. But obviously, this doesn't happen. Seeing the flaw in the reasoning, the failure of pretending to be better than you are, masking a crumbling world, only leads to the inevitable, the same as always, but perhaps faster than anticipated. And so the character starts to try and confront these feelings in Weekend Wars. Now, this is definitely not a state where the character is experiencing revelation. We're way too early for that. Instead, this is merely the reveal of the truth behind the pretending in the last song, the actual situation of the character. This is one of the most veiled songs on the album, and as a result, makes its analysis rather troublesome. We talked a bit about how many of the elements seem contradictory or create a kind of kitchen sink feeling where it is covering about as many topics as possible, from the corruption of money to depression, even 
even to car accidents and the party life in general. But what exactly are the weekend wars, and how do we nail down a specific meaning? Well, take a listen to the gospel-like chant at the end, and see if it doesn't reframe anything. There's a reason I don't win. I don't know how to begin. The first verse, as much as it describes the character, also describes the way he approaches that pretending in the first song. That party mentality that was used to replace the monotony and disaster of modern life. He'll sign treacherous contracts. He'll use drugs to create an interesting situation. He'll revert to empty feelings about what's happening, falling inward on easy things, things he can control, simple ideas like hunting, collecting food to stave off the depression inherent in the time. But the first chorus then shows how these feelings of escapism can lead down dangerous paths, a depiction of a car accident in ways that inspire a feeling similar to the car crash in Lord's melodrama. In a way glorified, as if this was the plan, there was an intention trying to amplify the sound of light and love. But at what cost? The second verse then doubles down on why he feels he needs to do this, citing problems of religion, terrorism, social media. He says that it's difficult to win unless you're bored, citing that there can only be a solution perhaps if one is unconcerned, hence his previous plans. But this boredom has the ability to then also tempt one into participating in the weekend wars, a euphemism for partying and drugs in the present focus rather than future focus. Thus, we're given some context for the I don't know how to begin line at the end. With the world as it is, with the problems in society bigger than one can reasonably bear, and his attempts at filling that time, however fleeting it may be, with partying and drugs and, as he'll say later, sleeping with each other, if those attempts are not working, or worse yet, causing people to be injured or worse, then what the hell is he supposed to do? He feels like he's just bad luck, a noise, a curse, and a sound. What's the method for living if not what he's been doing? Well, the first solution may be to look outward rather than inward. Maybe what he's been doing hasn't been successful because, like he said, he just doesn't know the answer or even where to begin. So he turns to the young, the still developing, the fresh eyes to look at the world and finds the predominant force to be one of light in the youth. Upon first listen, you may be struck by a feeling that the chorus seems to repeat quite a bit, fairly redundant and repetitive, just like that sentence. The youth are starting to change. Are you starting to change together? The word together is sung a whopping 64 times in this song. There's a gentle melodic quality to the song, especially in the way the singer uses an almost familiar tone, as if singing in, for lack of a better term, a hippie circle, comforting and honest in its delivery imperfect. This quality could develop an understanding of the song to be about showcasing what's happening to society, to those older and perhaps unwilling to change, affirming that this is something that will happen and you can either get on board or not. But what they offer doesn't seem bad to begin with. But the simple informative look at the song doesn't fully make sense for the story. The singer was unsure about what he wanted to do before this. Without an unreasonable time jump, there's nothing to suggest he's got it all figured out here. And if we take a look at the first verse, we'll see some hints as to the actual nature of this song's repetition. 
we could flood the streets with love or light or heat, whatever. This specific line does not read as someone who is fully invested in what he's selling, not fully understanding the mission or ideology of the group he is now claiming to be a part of. It's a lot like if someone were to ask you about an event that you've only heard about in passing. You have almost no information, but the faint image of generally what it could be. So you respond, I think it's like a festival or whatever, I don't know. You've started the other person on the right track, but you've brought more attention to your uncertainty and or indifference. The character obviously wants to be a part of this brightness, but he doesn't seem fully bought in. The aspects of his life to this point have not so much been about true light and love, as his previous foray into that idea led to a car crash. Real or metaphorical, still not ideal. So then it seems as though the repeating chorus may be acting as a mantra. Repeating the words over and over allows him to slowly convince himself that this is what he wants. But the story and the way he approaches this growth is not necessarily entirely straightforward, as we see in the following song, Electric Feel. This is by far the poppiest song on the album, a juggernaut on the radio in the late aughts and early tens, and even through to today. In this musical space, the song seems to lose a bit of the poetic quality. On the surface, the song seems to be about the character engaging in a flirtatious, and more, rendezvous with a confident woman. Someone who appears to be particularly good at that kind of interaction, being the dominant force in the encounter. I was standing there with nothing on, she's gonna teach me how to swim. It's all a pretty thinly veiled metaphor. But why then is the song so adamant about being almost international, attempting to encompass at minimum the whole of the US and abstracted possibly the entirety of the world? Opening up the first and second verse respectively are the lines all along the Western Front and all along the Eastern Shore. It's not hard then to extrapolate an invisible third, fourth, fifth verse that could talk about the other directions or the middle, surrounding and including, well, any country or place that has a border, which for all intents and purposes is all of them. Going even further, a line in the second verse suggests that this is what the world is for, making electricity. So breaking all of this down, we arrive at information that seems to combine the previous three songs. The main character is already attached to momentary pleasures, including pleasures of the flesh, even going so far in the youth to suggest that this was one of the things being advocated for. In some way, then, this song could be approached as the main character's attempt to integrate himself with the general push for light and love in the youth through something he understands, or at least wants. But maybe there's something else here, a conversation on a bigger topic that is starting to blossom growing from as far back as Weekend Wars and really coming into focus in the following song, Kids. Kids. 
Now, if memory serves you right, we've already talked about this. The connection to the Earth was one of the theories that we were showing could be attributed to the album. But at the time, we lacked the information to make a truly definitive case one way or another. As we said before, the crush some plants to paint my walls line in Weekend Wars doesn't necessarily imply drug use. It could also be about the exploitation of nature to provide creature comforts in your life. Inasmuch as dyes used in paint and wallpaper, whatever, historically were commonly made from plants or bugs or other natural materials. The youth has a line that slyly mentions global warming. In spite of the weather, we can learn to make it together. Electric feel has many mentions to electric eels, which despite being a rather weak argument here, does have the possibility of recontextualizing the song into one of an appreciation for the beauty of nature. Hell, even time to pretend, the satirical startup has a digging up worms line that mirrors the simple nostalgia of a line in this song, Kids, where a young individual, perhaps a younger version of the main character, picks the insects off plants. No time to think of consequences. Now, this isn't purely a story about the environment or a call to arms to live a better, more fulfilling life. This is an individual story story about learning to accept the past that happened and moving away from forgetting it in an attempt to allow others in the future to also have the opportunity to live and love and then remember. We see this most obviously in verse 2. A baby is born, crying out for attention. The memories fade like looking through a but I thought this wouldn't hurt a lot. I guess not. The character has, up until this point, been refusing to think back on his life. And when he did, he didn't feel like it would get to him. But the memories of that childhood, a mixture of need and freedom, a baby crying out for attention, but also we'd like to watch you laughing. There was pain there, sure, but also innocence. A time when he didn't have to worry about anything other than his mother being embarrassed by how loud he was. So the chorus of this song, Take Only What You Need From It, a family trees wanted to be haunted is not necessarily just about being environmentalist. Instead, much like one of the theories we provided, it's more of a desire to be focused on saving the planet for the sake of those who will be born and allowing them the opportunity to have that carefree childhood, not need to worry about the immediacy of their future as he didn't need to. Let your ancestors remember you and themselves, even if those memories get foggy over time, much like a ghost, a haunting. And so we've passed the middle of the album. The character has had a revelation, so it's time to complicate it. And complicate it we do in the following song, Fourth Dimensional Transition. Now, a quick science conversation. Depending on which field you're in or who you ask, the fourth dimension can mean one of generally two things. It could mean a material dimension that we are incapable of seeing, experiencing, or even comprehending. Almost as if you were a two-dimensional circle attempting to move in the third dimension. But some other fields suggest that the fourth dimension isn't related specifically to the shape of any object, but rather the time of an object. As time progresses, all objects are moved 
age forward through the fourth dimension, their quality changing over time. If you were to move an object then back in time, it would return to its state at that point in the fourth dimension, almost like a cross-section of the totality of an object's existence. In a way then, it's possible we could conceive of this song as a way to suggest that time has passed. And as a result, it seems the character has found a significant other. Well, maybe. The poetry of this song is unparalleled in this album. It's dense and introspective, but what I've gathered is thus. The opening verses seem to suggest a passionate romantic connection, his liquid silver arms extended, evoking imagery of a mercury thermometer rising. Or, I am fire, where's my form? Whisper crimson I intrude, implying a further heat-fueled feeling. Time was spent in this feeling, endless form, endless time, but we are given further information that perhaps this was something in the past, saying how she's a shadow in the fourth dimension. From here though, the song seems to implode. Take a listen. You speak the language of the breeze. All your leaves were meant for me. Has the love interest gone away like a passing breeze? Is the love interest not a person at all, but again, the earth? Is this love a poisoned apple, his heaving hands on rotten fruit? Or is this a reference to the apple in the Garden of Eden, forbidden knowledge? Honestly, this song could probably deserve an essay on its own. But the most important thing to note here is a line near the end. Either there's a purpose or I'm heading out at breakfast. This mirrors a line from Time to Pretend that we mentioned, asking an alternative to his hedonistic lifestyle at the time. Get jobs in offices and wake for the morning commute? But here, he's actively looking for something. Something stuck from his connection to the youth. Some desire for fulfillment, for purpose. But there's a lot wrong with the world, as we can easily see in Pieces of What. Evoking a kind of acoustic punk, prog rock, old school David Bowie style, we're transported into a soundscape heavily reminiscent of the hippie revolution, a kind of era that feels like it's present through much of the album. But the lyrics here are all rather dark and depressive. Blatantly, this song is about a city being bombed, or generally a description of wartime. Moonlight on my floor, shining through the roof, they got the city surrounded. A curiously beautiful sight juxtaposed against what we actually know is happening. A crumbled building, likely by a missile or mortar, showing the night sky. There's a defeatist quality to the first half, feeling consumed by the weight of what is happening, trying to pick up the pieces of what? Well, it's gone, so it doesn't matter anymore. 
But in that beautiful moonlight, framed in that juxtaposition in the second verse, the character finds some resolution. Again, taking inspiration from something he didn't have the right perspective on, he resolves to fight for the ability to keep surviving to witness that beautiful vision. There's a hope for purpose here. The difficulty of the fight bolsters him. He forgot his fear, and instead of casting off the pieces that he's attempting to rebuild, he clarifies, accepts the past and what is lost, and says they are pieces of what we used to call home. There's something attached here, and realistically, the whole thing could further abstract out to a description of the fight against climate change and to save the Earth, or even more personally, a fight to find purpose in a purposeless world. The ending of the song evokes a scene similar to Beowulf or other legends of yore. Having slain the dragon, he lays their teeth and his shallow water steel, possibly a reference to Excalibur, at the Belgian gates, a doubling down on the war reference as these were anti-tank devices. It's all textured and doubled, just as much as the album, but suggests a new resoluteness here, a new determination. And that resoluteness lights a fire and evolves into actual protest and frustration in Of Moons, Birds, and Monsters. Almost every line in this song is critical. As we've mentioned before, the opening lines ask why the world, and the US specifically, decide to do experiments on the moon, so far away, rather than focus on the temperature change on Earth. Following that is an indictment of people who hold and harness rage, punching holes in their walls rather than finding a solution to whatever ails them. The first line of the chorus sings about how animals are not going to understand the heat death of the ecosystem, still wanting to find whatever they can for as long as they can. But they can't help us. This is our fight. The second line of the chorus talks about bureaucracy, signed away with a feather pen that could make a kingdom burn, a law or agreement or veto that is signed in blood, a prick. All of this again layered in texture and poetry, but the subtleness is marred by the anger bleeding through, the frustration as to the quantity of problems and lack of solutions. The song builds to a final bridge just after one of the few guitar solos or even musical breaks in the album, a moment to let those frustrations boil over. That final bridge offers one final indictment, however. To catch a monster, we make a movie. It will inspire on the burning pyre. Communication is easy as the ocean. Essentially, this is a criticism of spectacle and entertainment as a false panacea or treatment for a negative event. Rather than address climate change, condemn a killer, implore equal rights directly, movies, documentaries, albums, etc. are made to tell of the problem. But this showcase, this spectacle, will mean nothing when the world burns for the mistakes consistently being made anyway. It should be easy. Communication 
should be simple, but he equates it here to the ocean, the one thing on Earth we know the least about, one of the things we talk about but don't truly understand. But the band is not immune from their own criticism. They did, after all, create an album that talks about all of these issues, showcases them rather than give direct solution for any one of these problems. And so the criticism turns inward and fights a specific problem that the band has faced in The Handshake. This is another song that experiences a doubling of narrative. On one hand, it's very easy to read this as a drug addiction or a relapse, a common interaction in back alley, dark club, late night drug deals, as far as I know from movies and entertainment and whatnot, is a handshake, one that exchanges the drugs from one party to another secretively. The song later states that the handshake, now likely referring to the drugs as the act through which they were obtained, is stuck on the tip of his tongue. It tastes like death, but it looks like fun. After six to seven songs, at the character trying to find something beyond partying and momentary pleasures, a relapse into that state would be troublesome, yet likely satisfying, as if returning to a nostalgic place. Later in the song, that satisfaction, though, turns into panic. He convinced himself he wanted it, but he doesn't know. Now he can't wash it from him fast enough. It has its claws dug too deep. But there's another story here. And let's listen to the full first verse to try and decipher it. People always told me, don't forget your roots. What this feels like is more of a reflection on their thrust into some version of the spotlight when signing their successful record deal with Columbia, one of the major record publishers, by no means an indie darling or hipster connoisseur. There's a battle within the lyrics of wanting to embrace the perks of having that big name connection, that dream now finally fulfilled from time to pretend, while also not wanting to forget about or lose the friends they had before. Your fair weather friends on a parachute binge get lost when the wind blows. Verse 2 almost entirely tells of that looming presence of wealth and fame, the thing they talked about desiring in time to pretend, now beautiful but a dark temptress, promising all of these good things, but they're able to see the darkness looming beneath a curse on all creation, every single thing you know. But it seems like they aren't able to escape the pull of this embrace, the handshake firmly embedded in their lives, and the song peters out with the repeat of that refrain. And now, into the final song in the album, the final chance for redemption, and maybe some way to tie all of the determination for purpose, the criticism on the emptiness of the future and sacrifice for the present, in this last song, Future Reflections. And there were future reflections On the face and the hands On a green-colored island On a primitive man It was the future reflecting 
Lyrically, this song is a blend of all of the songs before, a conversation that attempts to wrap everything in a nice bow. And for all intents and purposes, it manages to succeed. We've moved back into a pop-like style, a change intended to make the song as accessible as possible, to move its message to something that can and will hopefully be heard by more than their more experimental and esoteric ones. The main lyrical idea to focus on here is the journey of the main character, as this is a summation. The beginning tells of a beautiful green place that had a missing building, prompting the youth in the area to start addressing this. Either it was bombed and they are repairing it, or it was never there and the youth are working to build a better alternative. This matches in some way the character having a situation that they believed was good for them, but there was something missing, and that interaction with the youth allowed them to see an opportunity to change, to rebuild something that was not there. And he sees this opportunity, wanting to stay genuine, and implores the people he had joined to cut the essence of loneliness from him, to restore him to baseline. The song then veers into a space of war, talking of a leader and the main character tying themselves to their new friends, under the understanding that their fight may not win, but they must try. Will the fight to save the world be successful? It's hard to know, but as long as there's a chance it could be, it's worth it to try. And as he says, as long as you feel it, I'm a believer. That hope continues to rise, bringing a lyrical callback to the war in pieces of what, in that line we talked about earlier. If it's good or if it's fortune, I can't tell. But pieces come together for some reason just as well, implying a bigger hope than there was previously. Nothing is set in stone by the end, however. The end of that bridge evoking both the scene of a battle and the hope that someday it will be worth it, but not implying in any way that it has been accomplished. And so the song and the album finish with one more call to the past, one more embrace of the present, and perhaps one more hope in the future. Remember what it felt like to be alone, sitting in the sunlight, all alone. The character has gone on quite the journey to arrive at this point that marries all three of these time periods. From the beginning where he wouldn't even look at his past, wouldn't think about the future, merely lived in the moment and took what may. If you get a divorce, just find some other models. Everything must run its course. Through the examination of the innocence and wonder of his childhood, and the experience of those currently young having to fight battles he never needed to, he becomes emboldened to look at the world around him and find some purpose, some fulfillment, and perhaps some way at looking at the situation that could present a solution to these problems. He deals with some personal struggles along the way, but finally resolves to try and make the world a better place for the chance of others to be able to experience that peace, to sit under the sunlight, experience that warmth, and not be worried about what comes next for once. The world is a dangerous place, a crumbling place in some ways, as we've talked about before on the podcast, and it can be difficult to want to look at the future, one that seems to be fading away by the minute, and it can be painful to look at the past, an idyllic period that saw a lot of us not fearful for what lay ahead, merely inspecting and being a part of our world, but continuously passing the buck to the next generation only makes the situation worse. It makes it so those down the line have a worse adulthood, worse development, and worse childhood than we did. They'll never get to experience that peace, that innocence, if the world devolves to a point where pain is inherent 
at birth, and disaster unfolds at a pace that's impossible to shield the youth from. Sometimes the best purpose we can have, the best way to find fulfillment in a society that feels like the fast-track to destruction, is to take solace in our nostalgic past, embrace the moments we have each day, and find a way to fight to ensure that our future may be just as bright for ourselves as it will then end up being for our ancestors. The human race has survived for as long as it has, despite our intelligence, because of our love for our community and kin. It is only reasonable to believe that if we then want to continue to survive, we make that a fundamental part of the way we live and the way we fight. Stick around after the break for a quick talk about the album. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done doing the breakdown of the album, and now I'm just going to go over a few thoughts that I had while doing some research on the reviews and interviews about the band. To start off, this album was a curious one to cover because of how poetic its lyrics are. We went over some of it in the breakdown, but it's a lot more than I could have reasonably covered in the 30 to 45 minutes that these breakdowns tend to be. But as with any poetry and really any album analysis I've done on the podcast, it tends to to reflect my own personal understanding of what's going on, especially when it's as veiled as this one. And so, as always, I read it as an attempt to find purpose, as much of my life has been sent in the trenches of my psyche, trying to find out what it is I want to do, be remembered for, remember when I'm old. I don't know what the meaning of my life is, so I read many albums as a similar search. But a lot of different people would read this album in different ways. Going through a number of the different reviews, you would find people who see aspects of the story that I myself didn't see because I wasn't looking for them because they don't have a connection to me as a person. The Pitchfork review of this album finds Weekend Wars to be a callback to the silly games that children make up. Another touch toward that childhood and innocence and nostalgia inherent in the album. We touched on it a little bit, but I personally don't remember my childhood that much. I don't hold as much reverence for it because it's distant and foggy to me. It's something that I wish I could remember better, something that I despise that I can't, but it's not really something I can control. So being able to look at how other people approach the album allows me to see things that maybe I'm missing in my own read. And ultimately, this could all really just be in my head. The band seems fundamentally okay with their life. Interviews with them about their follow-up album, Congratulations, which was a commercial flop, see them taking the piss out of the whole situation. There's a genuineness to their exchanges, wanting to make something that they were sincere and excited about, but there's a general air of every interview about that second album of not really caring if it's successful or not, or believing it will be despite. Now, they have roots in being college pranksters, so it's difficult to tell what their actual endgame is in any interaction, but perhaps that's the point. As much as I wax philosophical about how important it is to be kind and supportive of your fellow person, and I find that read a lot in many of the albums, sometimes the only thing you're able to do to contribute to the world is to be sincere to yourself. Not everyone is capable of expressing to the world and expressing to those around them the things that I wax about on the show. It's not easy as just going out and being like, I'm going to help everyone I can possibly help. People are wired differently. So Sometimes it makes sense if a band like this is just doing the things that will make them happy, not necessarily having to read into something like I do. But again, that's the point of the podcast, and that's what I get out of these situations. So there's something to be said there as well. But it is curious.
curious about the things that they have said mean a specific thing one way or another. They did an interview with Under the Radar Mag promoting their second album, Congratulations, where one of the members of the band specifically says, I think it was kind of surprising to us that a lot of people didn't get the joke. Time to Pretend, which is definitely not a song that's advising people to forget about the world and party all the time, became known for that. That wasn't necessarily the message that we were trying to express. But fundamentally, what's strange about that interaction is that that almost exactly is what ended up happening. They ended up gaining massive success and ended up almost doing a lot of the things that were in Time to Pretend as a result of the success that they gained from that single, which was written in a time period before they were actually the band that they are today. This interview is a fantastic retrospective that gives really good insight into the process of the band from their beginnings through the second album and the way that the band saw their process evolve and come to terms with an audience of people who were unexpected due to the wildly different tonal space of their singles to the rest of their music. We'll put that link in the show notes. You should definitely give it a look. But ultimately, what that comes down to is every album, as we've talked about before, comes with its own story, comes with its own people that made the thing that you are experiencing, that you are exploring. But what they mean to say is not necessarily what you read. And so, as always, I implore you to go search out this album, listen to it for yourself, look up the lyrics, and see what it has to say to you, what it means to your life and your future going forward. See if it matches what I've said about the album, what I read into the album, or how it's different. And tell me about it. Reach out to me on social media at AJ Throughline at throughline at audiojudo.com. I want to hear what you have to say about each one of these albums that we cover. I want to see how it relates to your life and what you gained from experiencing it. That's ultimately the goal, giving you the opportunity to experience music you never experienced before and allowing you the opportunity to learn more about yourself in the process. So I thank you all for listening to this episode of Throughline with MGMT's Oracular Spectacular. And please comment, tell us what we can do better. We want to make the show as good for you as possible and keep the show going as long as possible. Tell all your friends, the bigger we are, the more we can do. And with that, we'll sign off with this episode. And always remember, the most important currency at the end will be the memories that you made. Thank you so much for listening. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. 
from assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.